1: Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
2: Welcome to the science of success. Introducing your host, Matt
3: Bodner. Welcome to the science of success the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over hundred countries. In this episode, we discuss how our guest helped secret agents become more creative. We look at specific strategies to navigate personal change while empowering and using your imagination. How do you become more imaginative? What are the keys to sparking imagination and creativity? How do you use creativity to get through challenges and setbacks? We discuss all of this and much more with our guest, Beth Comstock. Do you need more time? Time for work? Time for thinking and reading? Time for the people in your life? Time to accomplish your goals? This was the number one problem our listeners outlined, and we created a new video guide that you can get completely for free when you sign up and join our email list. It's called how you can create time for the things that really matter in life. You can get it completely for free. When you sign up and join the email list at successpodcast.com, you're also gonna get exclusive content that's only available to our email subscribers. We recently pre-released an episode and an interview to our email subscribers a week before it went live to our broader audience. And that had tremendous implications because there was a limited offer in there with only 50 available spots that got eaten up by the people who were on the email list first. With that same interview, we also offered an exclusive opportunity for people on our email list to engage one-on-one for over an hour with one of our guests in a live exclusive interview just for email subscribers. There's some amazing stuff that's available only to email subscribers that's only going on if you subscribe and sign up to the email list. You can do that by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're driving around right now, if you're out and about and you're on the go, you don't have time, just text the word SMARTER to the number 44222. That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we discussed what causes the big moments that can transform your entire life in an instant. And we showed you how to create that kind of motivation and inspiration in your everyday life so that you could be more productive and happier. We also exposed why the common wisdom about willpower and ego depletion was completely wrong and what you should do instead. We dug into all of that and much more with our previous guest, James Fell. If you want to be happier, more motivated, and more inspired, listen to that episode. Now for our interview with Beth. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Beth Comstock. Beth is a business executive and author with a deep history of leading large companies to success through innovation and new opportunities. She's currently a director at Nike, the trustee of the National Geographic Society, and a former board president of the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian National Design Museum. She's the author of the best-selling book, Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. She's worked in top leadership roles at GE, NBC, CBS, and her work's been featured across the globe. Beth, welcome to The Science of Success.
4: Great. Thanks for having me, Matt. Glad, happy to be here.
3: Well, we're really excited to have you on the show. And, and there's a number of themes from the book that I wanted to get into. But uh, I'd like to start out with a broader question. Uh, this idea that you that you open the book up with, this, this notion of the imagination gap. Tell me a little bit about that.
4: To me, the imagination gap is, is what I experienced a lot in the course of business, whether I was working with a, in a big company or with, with small companies. This notion that there's a gap that we where possibility and options for the future go to die because people are looking for certainty. They don't want to take risks. They're not using their creativity to to solve new problems in new ways. And so I just to me, it's this big gap of um, people failing to use their imagination to figure a better way forward. I start the book off with an a unusual story for me, certainly, and probably an unusual story uh, of me, of me, a business person going to talk to the CIA. You know, I was asked to come and speak to them to talk about navigating change. And I, I thought it was interesting for this issue of imagination, because you may recall back in uh, after 9-11 happened, there was a Senate hearing about what, what went wrong. How could we have missed the terrorism that was happening in the world? The 9-11 Commission indicted the CIA basically saying, you have a failure of imagination. You lost your way. You weren't open enough to see new possibilities. You couldn't imagine that terrorism was taking a different route and you failed to protect the, co- the country. And I thought that was a great example of the imagination gap. And it happens in many organizations. And uh, I was at the CIA because they had, in that time, figured out how to open themselves up, get more people in from the outside. They were bringing a business person in to talk about how do you think about change? How do you navigate your way through, you know, kind of finding better ways of doing things? So I thought that was very instructive, that some something as secretive and big and old as the cia who had to learn how to tap into their imagination
3: it's a really illustrative story and I, I think the question that you posed or the idea that you posed earlier in the conversation even is is really important which is this notion that our quest for certainty often ends up harming our our imagination and, and hampering us from really achieving the possibilities that are out there
4: yeah I be- i've seen it i believe it i think it's a couple of things uh, behind i mean we want a risk-free world, a risk-free life. And uh, to me, uh, I've thought a lot about this. Risk is the will to act on imagination. Risk is the will to act on imagination. I know it. And it ends up saving us because if you can't risk something to try something for a better way, how are you ever going to get out of situations? And you may recall back in 2000 or something, there was A book that came out right after 9-11 and uh, just looking at the economic issues, it was called The Black Swan. And it was about these once in a thousand year uh, catastrophes. Well, how many times now do we do we see this every day? There's a, you know, every day is a thousand year catastrophe. And I think the nature of change has changed a lot in our hyperconnected world things are just not more are faster, but they're they're disrupting more. And it's just that patterns are forming from all unlikely places, and they emerge seemingly overnight. But it one, we're not out there in the world discovering, we're not paying enough attention, we can come back to that. But we're not willing to take a risk on something that isn't proven. So we might see a pattern emerging, we might see something that looks odd. But unless we have empirical knowledge, or data, or else we say that doesn't apply to us. Or else we say, that's a problem, but I don't have, I don't have the solution. Or else we say, I, I'm going to solve it the way I've always done. And what's emerging are new kinds of problems, new kind of issues. And the old way is just not going to work. So that's what I, I think to, to what I wrestled with in business and I think in personal life as well is just understanding necessary risk. You, you, I, I met someone recently. He said, my job is risk avoidance. What advice do you have for me? I was like, none. I have nothing to give you except that you're going to fail. You cannot avoid risk. And so to me, that was the premise of why I felt compelled to write the book, because I saw too often in established organizations, people become afraid to try even necessary risk. I'm not talking about bet the company, you know, jump out, jump off the tallest building kind of risk. I'm talking about necessary risk of what you need to do to to move forward.
3: So what did you tell the CIA to help them be more imaginative?
4: Well, a lot of what they were looking at when I was there was just how do we see things earlier? How do we collaborate across units to to solve common problems? I mean, the CIA, I think, has an unlimited budget in some respects. So from a company perspective, you almost can't imagine. So in some respects, I, I was suggesting some ways to bring teams together to share problems, to share discovery to not have every unit off in their own, doing their own individual things, to try to be much more collaborative, to share the risk and reward uh, within their organization. They were already doing a good job of setting up some external networks. I encourage them to keep doing more of that. I mean, the formula to me, what I learned in the course of a career, what I try to put out and imagine it forward is kind of you know five key, they're not really steps, but kind of five key elements. It's one, this kind of notion of give yourself permission to try new things in new ways. So this kind of aid grab agency, which is kind of ironic. You're talking to an agency. The notion of just discovery, that it isn't something you delegate. Everyone has to make room for discovery. Uh, You have to invite in conflict. You constantly have to bring these sparks from the outside. And I was there in that capacity. I think every organization needs to bring in outsiders who challenge their perspective. They need to go see things that are weird, but that that notion of criticism and agitation and beating your ideas up, sparking a different perspective, the, the power of story, what's your strategy, what's your mission, where are you going, why? What problem are you trying to solve in the world? Why do you exist? How's a story that people can relate to that? And then the, the last piece is just create a space where you can do a lot of experimentation test and learn, new kinds of partners, new kind of initiatives, seed small projects. And that's a lot of what I ended up speaking to them about, about ways to um, create accountability, focus on the experiments, be able to take risks and fail in things. In in fact, in some respects with them, their challenge was how do you create more constraint, which uh, for for many companies, whether you're a small startup where you're incredibly well-funded or a big company where you forget what it's like to be small, you need to put constraints in the system to to challenge your thinking.
3: I want to dig into a number of these different topics, but let's let's start out with the first idea, or really even coming back to some of the early themes from the book, this notion of of reinvention and and the various components around that. Tell me a little bit about that.
4: Well, I think we're because of this just disruptive era we're in, um, we all have to get good at change. I think I distinguished myself in GE and my career as somebody who sought out change, wanted to understand it, learn it early so we weren't surprised by it. And I had to get good at that myself. And it's about just unlocking your curiosity. But at the heart of it is this just need to be more adaptable. If you're really rigid, you cannot keep up with the, the pace and disruptive nature of change. So that's at the heart of, of I, I think, what, what I'm talking about is just, do you have your own practice of adaptation? Do you? I mean, usually when the, the more successful people get, the harder it is to change their ways. When you got nothing to lose, often that's the time, and I think in my career, when I had nothing to lose or I worked with teams that had nothing to lose, those are the times when we took the biggest risks or because we're like, what the heck? Who cares? Let's go for it. So um, I do think that notion of being ready for change and creating a practice that that makes you more adaptable is at the heart of kind of the the challenges that we have right now. And it's in the face of right now with a lot of data, A.I., a lot of people fearing that, you know, algorithms and robots are going to take their job. But at the end of the day, if we're not, what are we left with? Our creativity, our strategic thinking, our creative problem solving. Those are the things that are going to get you through the disruption and the change.
3: What does that mean when you talk about having a, a practice or a process of of adaptation?
4: It's just delegating your mind and your time to to doing it. So I'll give you a couple of examples. I think that this notion of a mindset shift is key. I always like the work of Carol Dweck, who's a a professor out of Stanford, who talks about a fixed mindset or an open mindset. So to be kind of change ready, you have to open your mind up to new possibilities. So you're giving, you know, kind of grabbing agency, giving yourself permission to kind of open up. That's critical. How do you do that? For me, I tap into my curiosity. I try to encourage those I, I work with. It's this idea of just getting out in the world and going and seeing for yourself. So I think you have to make room for discovery. You have to get out in the world. Why? What are you doing when you do that? One, you're you're just seeing new things. You're going to places that challenge you, where points of view contradict what you believe, places that it's weird, especially places that it's weird. What are you doing that you're learning? You're asking. I think you're building connections and seeing patterns. I have a really simple method I use called going on threes. I actually carry a little notebook or I make notes in my phone of interestingness. So first time I'll see something out exploring, I'll make note. That's interesting. Second time I'll ask, huh, is that a coincidence? Third time I'll declare it's a trend. I don't need it certified by any futurist. And I figure out, okay, if it's related to work, what do we need to do to learn about this? How can we discover more? Something personally, I'll want to learn about it. And I think most of us are sort of stuck in doing things the way we always do, them. we spend our time the same way. I guarantee you, you have a small amount of your time. I always urge people, you have 10% of your time you can take back to go do these things. It can be as simple as walk a new route to work, drive a new route to work, explore something new. If you're traveling, you're going through the airport, you have nothing to do, you're going to be on the plane, there's no Wi-Fi pick up a magazine that you would never read. I I challenged someone to do this recently and she told me she picked up a wrestling magazine. So you're just trying to challenge yourself to to just go out. I used to do this with the teams I worked with. We would go, we would do field trip Fridays once a month or once a quarter. We would just go out and we'd go to a new retail store. We'd ask to meet with a startup. You can see what's happening at a local museum. You're doing these things often together but you can do this individually. You're just trying to see what's happening in the world. And then just to kind of sort of give everyone a challenge of how you might think about this, think back 10 years ago to something that seemed weird or silly or like too far out. It's like that's never going to happen. And now it's mainstream. What do you think of? So when I think of that, I think of things like uh, I just got back from Las Vegas. There was the biggest cannabis conference ever, marijuana. A decade ago, you could not have imagined it being medicinal, let alone legal. I was with uh, some folks in the beer industry recently, and they were talking about how they were absolutely caught off guard, disrupted, flummoxed by craft beer. Well, it's not like these little brewers just emerged overnight on a hot plant and took over the brewing industry. They were knowable. They were the, you could have seen that pattern. So that's what I'm talking about. You just have to kind of open yourself up. Go to where things are different or weird and understand what you can start to learn. I think that's a critical element of a practice that you build. I do that. I I have at least 10% of my time on any given week where I'm out discovering something new.
3: There's a great quote that touches on that, which is that the future is here, but it's just not evenly distributed yet.
4: Exactly. I love that quote. Exactly. Um, and you have to put yourself out there. I um, I use a, a quote in the book from Joey Ito, who's the head of the Media Lab at MIT, a great future thinker. He calls it mushroom hunting. You know, you're just out there. You know, often when you're you're out in the world, if you're you're just kind of looking at the patterns, and and you start to you know you start to after a while get good pattern recognition that you're able to see the mushrooms from the leaves. You have to do it a while to get good at that. Another phrase I like along those is this idea of get outside the jar. It's notion of imagine you're in a pickle jar you can't see the label because you're on the inside. But if you get outside, you can see a whole new perspective. So that's what I'm talking about. That that's one thing anyone and can do easily, and I think everyone must.
3: I love even the simple idea of picking up a magazine or reading some kind of content that's radically new or radically different from the ideas that you're typically exposed to.
4: I think you have to do that and I think in especially in the world now with just the political nature and people tending to choose their filters based on their tribe if you will I think it's even more important to understand what other people are reading seeing doing so you're not surprised by it so I think there's also kind of humanity and political reasons to be thinking about doing that as well
3: so I want to come back to some of the other themes or ideas from the, the reinvention segment of the book, one of them that I found really interesting was this notion of social courage. Tell me a little bit more about that.
4: Yeah, I love this idea. And for me, it was a critical part of my early career, especially this notion, I, I guess, in its purest sense, social courage is just that courage you have to have to connect with others to, op- to do, open yourself up to make genuine con- connections and to put yourself out there. So for me, it was a particular challenge because I'm a reserved person, I'm shy, and I'm also introverted. And so in building a career or just kind of showing up in life, I'm never the life of the party. You're never going to like go, oh my gosh, she's so hysterical. She closed the party down. And I would often, especially in the course of work, I would hold myself back. I wouldn't ask questions. I wouldn't suggest ideas, even though I had them. I was shy or felt quiet about it and so this notion of social courage was something I had to learn to put myself out there to connect with people as awkward as it was and sometimes still
0: okay picture this it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road with available h-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating my whole family can head deep into the wild With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
3: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks.
4: I had to get out of my head. I mean, it's real behavior change, small steps forward. And that's what I did. I, I had one incident I talk about in the book where I was 30. I was working as a um, communications leader, manager level at Turner Broadcasting, the the birthplace of CNN. And Ted Turner was the founder. And I worked there a year I, doing communications, including for him. And I worked there a year and he didn't know my name. And I realized it was holding me back once I showed up an event where he was getting an award. And I said, okay, I've got to, I've got to change this. I'm going to introduce myself to him again. And I, I did it very awkwardly. I, he went into the men's room. I was waiting for him when he came out of the men's room. I like go to shake his hand. His hand was really wet. He's looking at me like, what do you got? And I lost my nerve. He walked away. He never knew my name. But I was incredibly proud of myself, as awkward as it was, because I did it. Rather than just standing against the wall and going, ah, oh, he doesn't know my name. And so that was a good example for me of that kind of as awkward as it was. It could have been a fail. OK, he never knew my name. But that was the spirit with which I undertook these small challenges and changes. I, I'm not good at parties, at networking events. And so I would go into them and, you know, stand by the chip bowl or something and then go home. But I had to change my tune. Again, similar thing. I'm gonna give myself a challenge. I'm gonna go and I'm just gonna meet one person, have a conversation as long as it lasts, and then I'm gonna go home. Next time it would be two, or I'm gonna to go to this meeting and today I'm gonna to ask, I'm going to do my homework and I'm gonna ask a question. So those are the sort of behavior changes I had to make to get social courage. Because if I didn't do it, I was missing opportunities, I wasn't making connections. And i I look over the course of my career. I think what i'm one of the things I'm most proud of is that I did open myself up. I did find little ways to put little tiny pockets of confidence and courage in my pocket when I needed them in those situations. And they're the kind of thing that to other people, it sounds silly. What? You're embarrassed to go introduce yourself to that person. Are you crazy? But to you, it's important. It takes a lot of courage sometimes to do those things when other people may find them easy. You know, there are a couple of messages in that, but I'm I'm proud of myself that I overcame that. Uh, I still feel that way at times. And I'm really proud that I opened myself up. And I think I helped open up my company at GE to kind of difference to things that were new next in a much earlier way. So social courage applies to companies too. It's not just the individuals.
3: I love this idea of of power of small challenges and how they can help you build up skills, especially social skills. We've had a number of, of past interviews that talk about this and, and the idea of rejection therapy, which I don't know if you're familiar with or not, but the, the notion no, of... No,
4: say a little bit more about it. Yeah.
3: Basically, the idea is you go and try to get rejected every day for X number of days. And it can be as, something as simple as asking for a free cup of coffee or asking for a discount on something you're buying or asking a stranger for 10 bucks or whatever it is. And you keep doing these challenges to build up the tolerance of being uncomfortable in social situations. And it's a great skill set. That's
4: a good one. It makes me think of a career as an actor, too, where you're constantly being rejected. But it's different here. You're talking about really that social engagement. You're you're kind of uh, like you're building up your immunity a bit. Is that right?
3: Exactly. Yeah. You're building up your immunity to discomfort, to embarrassment, to rejection, to, you know, all of these kind of social things that it's so easy to build up in your head.
4: For me it was that curiosity that was the antidote for me or the medicine if you will because I what what I found happened to me because I'm in I live in my head I think many people do it comes with that kind of awkwardness of of being shy I think uh, and I'm just always sussing out in my head what the other person's thinking and it and I'm thinking one I'm sure there's no way they're ever going to want to talk to me or they're going to think this question's stupid And so I'm in my head. I'm not even listening to them. And I had to sort of, one, say, stop, like that voice just drowned, stop. But then to sort of summon the curiosity, say, it's not about what they think of me. What can I learn from them? Not just say, what do you do? How are you? But what's interesting to you these days? What surprised you lately? What's your story? I mean, you have a certain amount of confidence to ask those questions, but you have much better conversations, you know, where'd you grow up? Why'd you choose that? What's the best thing you've learned this year? Those were ways I got more of that courage and then confidence, social confidence, I think, because I just turned it out of my head and I wanted to learn. It was more, what can I learn from them as opposed to what am I saying about me?
3: And in many ways, this this makes me think of another really interesting theme from the reinvention segment of the book, which is the idea of no is not yet. Tell me about that.
4: It's really set in this notion that I feel like I've encountered my whole career as somebody who's driven to find, make champion change and innovate for new ways. There's gatekeepers and gatekeepers exist everywhere. And by gatekeeper, I mean, someone who protects the gate. So you cannot get in here. They don't let you go through, you cannot pass go. And who are gatekeepers? They exist everywhere. They exist in our own mind. The they this, this notion that I don't want a better way. I feel threatened by a better way or imaginative thinking, or I, I have control. So I'm just gonna hang on to the control. And the answer is no, you cannot do that. And I just started to realize that one, a lot of fear makes people act that way or feeling a need of control. But I also started realizing I had more power in those situations than I thought. I, I shared a story of I had a gatekeeper boss and he was a classic gatekeeper, and I left my company because I just thought he couldn't get around him. Over time, I sort of developed this no is not yet resiliency. When I realized, i tell you a story, I was working at NBC, I kind of went back and forth to NBC a couple of times, but I'd pitched this idea for the NBC Experience store. I thought it was just fantastic. I pitched my boss, and he. we did all our homework, and he said no. Anyway, long story short, I pitched it three times. By the third time, he said yes. He looked at me and he said, I wanted to say no, but you made it so darn hard, I have to say yes. And one, we made the idea better. That first time, that idea wasn't as good. So he actually made us do our work. We made the idea better. Two, he was testing me and the team. Were we passionate enough about this to see it through? It wasn't the world's best idea, but were we committed to make it the best idea. And he was testing us. And I just can't tell you how many times I've seen that in the course of innovation work, where I see someone come in and pitch an idea, it could be C-suite of a company to somebody just starting out, and they get told no, and they go away. And you never hear from them again. And you're like, but I thought you liked that idea. What happened? Because they got no. And to me, no is not yet. Like, Keep testing it. Keep coming back. Okay, you can't come back exactly the same way. Go do your homework. Get feedback. Come back. And if you really believe it, keep pursuing it. That being said, you also have to have a strategy. And if I was pitching NBC Ice Cream at the time instead of the NBC Experience Store, that idea would not have been sound. NBC was never going to get in the ice cream business. And hopefully I would have gotten feedback that said, we're never going into the ice cream business. So there's also a bit of realism, but maybe if I wanted to create ice cream, I would have had to go somewhere else and I would have kept pushing it. But my point is a couple of things. My points are a couple of things. One is no really no. It usually isn't the first time. Test that if you're passionate about it. Don't wait for someone else's permission to act on your imagination. I mean, that's what I'm trying to say. In fact, I kind of talk in the book and I I use this with teams I worked with and even myself, this notion of give yourself a permission slip. It sounds so silly, but it's one of these little behavior hacks that I found works. You know, you may recall from high school uh, if you forged your mother's signature to get out of gym or chemistry or something, it's like that. I'm going to give myself permission to go back and try another. I try it again. I'm going to give myself permission to go meet this person. Just a little mental hack that says I'm going. I'm committing to do this, and that's what you're doing. This notion of no is not yet. You're building up a resiliency. It may be that rejection therapy that you were talking about. It was kind of my sort of DIY way of getting to overcoming rejection for the positive.
3: Yeah, I think they're very interrelated and connected in many ways. And I thought the the notion of the 3X rule was a really succinct way to think about it and, and realize that just because someone said no one time doesn't necessarily mean you should give up. And in fact, some of the richest, most exciting or interesting opportunities might come after several no's.
4: Yeah. I mean, to me... I especially worked for one boss and I knew it would take me at least three times. And one time it took me about six years to get something launched. Like I remember once this colleague of mine, she looked at me and she's like, you just don't give up, do you? I don't think she meant it so positively, but I took it as a <laughs> compliment. It was like, I'm still here. I'm still, I'm still believing in this. Now, it's not just you on your own. Hopefully at that point, six years later or annoyingly later, you've, you've built people who also see that possibility. They've made it better. They've contributed. You've opened it up. You've built some momentum. That's a sign that you're onto to something. If it's still just kind of like you out there on your own, it's, it's a much harder way to, to build that resiliency and, and kind of test that, that, those limits.
3: I think either way, the, the simple idea that just because you hear no one time doesn't mean you should give up is, is a very powerful notion.
4: Yeah, exactly. And I think it's important for all of us, but it's hard to be told no. But do you believe it? That's it. To me, it's, a, it's that no is not yet. I hear it as an invitation. No? Okay, I hear you. You're just saying not yet. Huh. Okay, now how can I come back again in a way that they'll find it more, I can sell it better. Give me feedback. Let me go talk to somebody else. Let me do some more homework. So no, it's just not yet. Or the time could be wrong. I mean, how many times have we seen where you have a great idea, you're too early, or it's just the wrong time? And so I think some of those also requires you to be reflective and open to feedback and recognizing kind of the, the fallacies of some of those things. So there's a humility in that as well.
3: Let's change gears a little bit. I want to step into some of the other themes and ideas. Tell me about the, the notion of, of building bridges and not walls.
4: Yeah, well, that this is a hard one, one for me, because I, I think, like most people, when you fight for an idea or a different way, you get can be very tribal in your organizations. It's my marketing team against the product team, or it's, you know, my town against your town or whatever. And I felt what I, I didn't know this at the time, but in looking back, I, I feel like, a way I built my career was as this outsider inside. I came from media into from NBC into GE, media into this multi, you know, industry company and industrial. And so I was a natural outsider. I came as a marketer in a tech company that had little appreciation or even cared about what marketing did. I was a woman in a largely male engineering dot oriented company. I was a creative person in this largely financing and engineering company. So I had a lot of things that made me different. And I loved exploring outside and finding the trends and insights. And I began to realize my role was as this outsider inside, the one who could bring the outside in and translate it in a way that the inside could understand in language they could understand. And then to build the bridges to that, what often happens when you're championing the new, and I I learned this very painfully, is you become sort of the, you're trying to be the cool kid, the trendy one, the one who sees it first. And people don't know what you're talking about. They feel excluded. It's your way versus their way, as opposed to trying to create the opportunity for joint discovery and learning, together trying to solve a problem. And I, just to me, it's it's sort of the backbone of what I learned in my career as somebody trying to push for new and different ways. That be the cool kid is really a bad answer because just because people need to change doesn't mean that they're bad or that they have bad ideas or that they don't get it. Often they have real criticisms that you need to you need to understand. So I found over time and experience and confidence that really my best success came from building those bridges as opposed to building up the wall and saying, you just don't get it, do you? I'm going to go do it on my own because it usually was never as good if the team and I did it on our own.
3: So what were some of the strategies you used to, to get buy-in and, and to, to build those bridges as opposed to creating barriers?
4: Well, I'll use an example of what didn't work to get to what did work. So I, I talk I, I, in the book, I talk about agitated inquiry, of a lot of the the conflict that happens in organizations. And anytime you're trying to sort of go from the old to the new, And I was at NBC at the arrival of digital media. This is when YouTube just came on the scenes. And I was there. I came back from GE to to lead digital media. And it was very disruptive. People were afraid. I mean, there were cats playing the piano on YouTube. Oh, my gosh. One hand, that's cute. Ha, ha, ha. On the other, it was really scary. We don't know how to do that. So people were very afraid. I hired a lot of people from outside who had digital expertise. I was a marketer. I don't know digital technology so I, I depended on their expertise, and honestly, we kind of set ourselves up as the cool kids. We knew we knew the future, and if you don't get it, you're just going to be left behind. And who wants to work with people like that? I think what we did a little bit, but I could have done a lot more was create teams. So we ended up creating uh, some different streaming video streaming video services. One ended up being Hulu, that was created out uh, sort of at the partnership outside of NBC, but we seeded it. And I think what what we could have done more of early in that is just found ways to build teams with the team forging the new and the team who have been doing it the traditional way. One, come together and say, "What problem are we trying to solve? We're all trying to solve the same problem. Video streaming is coming. How are we going to do that successfully?" We could have shared resources better. Often, in a case like that, you're fighting over who gets more budget to do what and you're having to fund the new and yet the old Thing, makes more money for the company? Can we set up a special fund, a, a budget that is shared that that so people don't feel they have to give something up to get something? Could we just have spent time getting to know one another? I mean, these often sound goofy in work contexts of the bonding kind of things you do, but it's important. Rather than fighting people about my idea or yours or marketing versus sales, hey, they're real people. They have problems. I remember I, I talk about one leader I had a, had real issues with, and I kind of lost sight of the fact he was a person even. We were just at war, and it was his team against my team. And I once was a friend of his, and he was a great dad, and he had been a cancer survivor. I kind of lost the sense of humanity. Even something as simple as, like, I could have taken him out for coffee as opposed to fighting in his office. What about instead saying, hey, this is dumb. Let's just go grab a cup of coffee. Let's cool off. I want to hear what's up with you. But you get caught up in the moment. You need to build those bridges. And then the last thing I'd say that I found very effective in building those bridges were bringing in outsiders to to provoke those conversations so I didn't have to do it all the time or so my team didn't have to do it because they weren't going to believe me anyway. So bring in an outsider with some expertise. I don't know, blockchain, Bitcoin is a good one in business right now. Are they going to listen to me who grew up in the company or are they going to listen to somebody who's been investing or creating blockchain for a while and have them challenge him, that sort of brings the team together. It's kind of us against that. So you're kind of shifting your focus to the team together to that outside threat or disruption. So those would be a few of the things that I found helpful. And I didn't do them all. I'm telling you, I learned them painfully. So it's not like I know all those answers.
3: Really good strategies. And, and it's so important to get buy-in from, from those around you. And oftentimes, the approach of direct confrontation is, is not the best strategy to do that.
4: It's not. I mean, but I do think I, I subscribe to this invite your critics in notion. It's really hard. And I don't mean invite in just the total downers who hate everything. I mean, they're not helpful. But the people who have critic are critics. Well, they're smart. They're colleagues. Why not ask them? Often, they just want to be heard. They, want to, they have a different way. And you, I found that they can become your best advocates. They can contribute the best ideas. One, they've been heard, and they're just looking at it from a different perspective. But again, in the heat of that, oh, I got, I'm going to do it my way, you lose that perspective. So I think a lot of what I'm talking about, this imagine it forward kind of framework is just, just open up your aperture, open up your imagination, and, and let other perspectives in.
3: I want to dig into more into this idea of agitated inquiry that you touched on earlier and how to invite critics in the right way to beat up your ideas.
4: Well, I think one, you just have to say, I need help. Hey, I find this a lot where um, I've done it, uh, where you have a great idea, you think, but you don't want to share it yet because you're afraid if you share it, that somebody's going to steal it. And, or maybe you're not going to get credit. And if you do, you're not going to get credit for it. So you hoard things. And, you know, I I got feedback. Uh, One of the more more formative feedback sessions I ever had was this exact point where people, uh, my colleagues said in a 360 evaluation, they said good things about me, but I only really cared about the negative things. And it was this, it was like, hey, you don't ask for help. You go it alone. You have to have everything perfect. And they were right. I felt really stressed about having to have all the answers and when you start to realize that you got to invite in feedback the good and the bad but that criticism really stung and i remember the the hr coach who, who i had it was an hr person in my company who gave me the feedback he said look you got to get in there with your team you got to say to them feedback and criticism heard and accepted i'm going to work to do better but i need your help Oh, that was the hardest thing I ever had to do. But it worked. And it, I, I feel like it unlocked just so, so, such a new path for me in my career and my life. And I think that's part of that agitated inquiry is you're inviting feedback. One of the hardest questions I adopted and like ended up liking in the course of business was, tell me something I don't want to hear. And that's what happened at that 360 Tell me something I don't want to hear, because usually I need to hear it, and I probably know it's true, but I'm just avoiding it. So I think that really harsh feedback in business it's important. You know, maybe your competitor's already doing it. Maybe your idea is just not that good. I also think agitated inquiry. The inquiry part is about asking questions. You know, it's uh, what we said earlier. It's not just saying questions to prove how right you are. It's questions to learn. What problem are we trying to solve? I found that was a great way to bring dueling, feuding teams back together. Are we even talking about the same problem at this point? Let's go back and reframe the problem. Are we agreed on that? Let's name it. Maybe we even name it something really silly so we can all laugh at it and have fun with it. So again, you're just kind of forcing a different perspective and, and uh, kind of refreshing the, the framework a bit. Those are things that I've found helpful to kind of open yourself up to the agitation and the inquiry.
3: It's it's so important because oftentimes we try to protect ourselves. We try to protect our ideas, even our own egos. But by trying to hide from, from negative feedback or things that we disagree with, we're, we're harming ourselves. We're harming the quest for the best ideas and the best solutions.
4: Well, you said an important word there, Matt. I think the ego thing is a big part of it. If you really believe the idea, if you really believe in a better way, it's because you're trying to solve a problem. You see a need. You see something better. Ask yourself: Is it really because I? It's my idea. I want credit, or I want this to happen? And I had to learn that. And even still, like you know, we all want credit. We all want people to think we're brilliant and smart, and we come up with the good ideas. But over the course of a career, I started to realize that the best ideas are shared because they really are. And it's not just about getting the credit. Do you really want that to happen? The credit usually follows. People know if you were the instigator, the the collaborator, the convener. If you do it enough times, people know. They start to come to you. Hey, you're always contributing to an idea. You always make an idea better. Uh, You always ask me for help. I'm going to come and ask you for help so we can do this together. I guarantee it is a more successful path, even though at times you work with people, you, you're friends with people who take all the credit. You think, ah, now, that's not to say don't toot your own horn when you've done something. Well, I'm, I'm not trying to say that, but I think that word ego and my idea is something to really interrogate if you, if you feel that in yourself.
3: And this idea dovetails in many ways with another key point that you wrote about, which is the notion of acknowledging reality.
4: Yeah, I mean, I I talk about it in the sense of magical thinking, and I, hi boy, I subscribe to it. And I think organizations and work situations, you just start believing a version of the truth that you want it to be, and and you're not being truthful about maybe your competitive position, about what your strengths really are, about what your weaknesses are really holding your back, holding you back. And that's why that kind of agitated inquiry, you're tell me something I don't want to know. I don't want to hear like you got to sometimes. It doesn't mean you have to always accept it because maybe it's not right for your strategy, but, um, that reality check, I see so many, I've seen so many teams. You just, there's just almost like a superstition that takes over of if we change the way we're doing it, we'll never, we'll never be successful. I, I saw this a lot with sales teams I worked with, you know, the lucky, the, lucky sales, the lucky sales sweater, or I worked with somebody who always wore yellow socks on the day of the big, of the big deal. And like, on one hand, that was great because it gave them a sense of confidence and, and an optimism they, they felt needed. Okay, fine. It also can sometimes prevent people from trying things differently or trying a different way to say maybe that just because I was wearing the yellow socks, I'm still not effective, right? So anyway, I, I think you have to, again, interrogate that and understand where it's coming from. And I'm not wearing yellow socks.
3: <laughs> you raise a great point, which is which is this notion of we often delude ourselves into thinking things are the way that we want them to be, or the way that they sh- quote unquote should be, instead of the way that they truly are. And and that's often a dangerous place to be.
4: It is, and I, I, I'm speaking to you as a marketer, a market. I uh, to me, marketing is about making the market, living in the market, but it's often shaping a market in business, meaning. Here's a vision, what we did with clean tech. Here's a vision, a cleaner future for industry. Now we have to shape, make it, shape it. So there is a part of that magical thinking, that exuberant optimism that's required to create things that don't exist. You have to see it before it's real. So I think, again, it's critical thinking to say, am I seeing things that are opportunities that can actually I can shape, or am I hanging on to something? that's a superstition or just a comfortable way of viewing it. And it's preventing me from going forward. So I, I want to be clear. I think, I think they're kind of shades of, of similar thinking, but one's a more successful path forward than the other, obviously.
3: That makes me think of another interesting idea that, that you wrote about, which is this notion of going boldly into the unknown. Tell me more about that.
4: I opened the book uh, with me talking about my divorce, which is not the way one would expect you to open a business book. I probably am the only one who's ever opened a business book that way. And it's really a very different kind of book because of that. But I, I'm very personal in it. I'm sharing my own stories. And I talk about being in my mid-20s, my career just started and I was married and it just had a young daughter. And I felt I was sort of living a story that wasn't the story of my that I wanted my life to be. It wasn't what I was imagining in the future would what how the future would unfold. And so I got a divorce and decided to move forward as a as a young single mother, just as my career was taking off. And I had no idea what I was getting into. I mean, in some respects, you know, now you know much older with that looking back, I, I would have probably advised me not to do it. But I had to. I had to take hold of my own story. I had to create my path. I just, I had to. And so I didn't have a roadmap. There wasn't a checklist someone gave me. And I think I used that because to me, that was one of the defining moments of my life. And certainly it, it influenced me in business in the sense of I've been here before. You kind of have to make it work in some semblance of work. I had to make a life at work. I had to responsibilities. I had to find a work path that would work for me and my daughter. And so you don't have all the answers. And if you're waiting for the perfect time, you're waiting for the perfect situation, it's not going to happen. I was recently on a flight and the flight got tight, as most of us can can, can commiserate with. And the pilot came out and he said, okay, some bad news and some good news. The good news is we're cleared to fly. The bad news is our autopilot went out. Um, but I'm a certified, I'm certified to fly with autopilot. I'm without autopilot. I'm one of the few pilots left in this airline who can do that. And I'm so excited. I love flying this plane. I'm going to get you home. Well, but I'm really excited about this. And I think that's it, right? I mean, yeah, one, we felt confident cause he had had experience, but you, are you on autopilot or are you, are you going to get out there and figure it out? This is, Bold could be very relative. It could be very small or very big, depending on your tolerance. But there is no, usually there is no checklist. There is no rule book. There is no this step, that step, this step when you're navigating change. So take off the autopilot and just go for it. That is what I'm trying to say.
3: Another idea that I really liked was this notion of constraints being being necessary for creativity. Tell me a little bit about that.
4: Well, back to that no is not yet, I also encountered, uh, and for myself as well, just people, all of us who feel like, oh, I don't have enough time, budget, staff, team, I don't have help, so I can't do that. I've often found the most creativity comes from very tight constraints. You as you grow a business, you need more money, clearly. But so, this notion of just constraints I I like the idea of freedom within a framework. You're very clear about here's the framework, our strategy of, of what we're trying to do, but within that, go to town, be creative. So, often you probably don't need as much money as you think. Let's say you're dreaming of building a business and you think you have to go to Silicon Valley. You don't. If you live in Nashville, Boston, Austin, Portland, Maine, or Oregon. Often you can just start where you are. You don't have to wait for this. I need funding. I need a VC to give me money, whatever it is. Just start. Just start. See if you can get some traction. I guarantee you, you can just start some things. Um, now, it's not to say at some point you don't, but, but it, it's a challenge to just say we don't need as much. What if I don't need as much time as I think I do? What if it's actually I control the time and I can give myself more time? Who am I waiting to tell me it's okay? So, again, it's just a simple concept of is it a constraint, really, or are you just afraid to challenge it? Is it an artificial alibi, if you will, to hold you back? If it is a real constraint, then challenge yourself to say, how am I going to creatively solve this? I guarantee it's a good it's a good way to test your creative problem solving.
3: So for listeners who are listening to this interview and and want to concretely implement or execute on one of the ideas that we've talked about today, what would be one action step or piece of homework that you would give them to implement some of the things we've discussed?
4: I'm gonna give you two because I think one is just like ask yourself what's one thing you wanna you wanna move forward on. It can be very small. You want to meet somebody, you wanna test an idea, you wanna write a poem. I don't know. Ask yourself what's holding you back. Give yourself seriously get out that permission slip. Just write. I, Matt Bodner, give myself permission to write this poem as crappy, horrible, messy as it's going to be. I'm going to do it. And just do it. It's just that simple. You're not asking yourself to be, you know, uh, Maya Angelou. You're just saying I'm going to go do this. So that would be my challenge. What are you going to give yourself permission what, what, to take a risk on a small step? It could be It could be significant only to you. That would be it. A behavior change starts. One small step, one small piece of courage that you're kind of putting in your pocket for later and remember, hey, I did that. I did that. Next time you're going to pull it out of your pocket and do it again. That, that's, that's, what it, that's what it takes to start.
3: And for listeners who want to find you and, and your work online, what's the best place for them to do that?
4: I do quite a bit on social media. I um, So you can find me on any of the social platforms. I especially do uh, a lot of uh, back and forth engagement on LinkedIn. Uh, but I'm on all of them, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. And I think that's probably the best place to, to go. It's at Beth. Um, is the best way to do the search.
3: Well, Beth, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all these uh, insights and all this wisdom with our audience.
4: Well, thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate the focus of what you're trying to do with your podcast. And uh, thanks for having me as part of it. it. It really is, you know, we have the power. We have the agency to make some of this change. And it's exciting to hear that you're trying to drive that kind of awareness.
3: Thank you so much for listening to the science of success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is Matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email.